Munal. I'd like to thank uh, uh, Professor Kanan and Meera and all of them for having me over here. It's such an honor to be in the presence of such legends in the domain. I think the inaugural session did a fabulous job of setting the tone, setting with, with such clarity about what are the challenges that we face in the domain today. And what I found particularly interesting was that these are challenges not just of the domain, but what we are facing as an Indian society as a whole. Whether the way Professor Jha, all of them, they emphasize the lack of intellectual rigor that we find these days, the way we take over second-rate, third-rate, often nth-rate interpretations of our own births and have them as the basis for understanding and developing templates and paradigms. All of these point to major challenges that you know we all have to uh, address. And as an independent inquirer, because I come from a background of science, I'm an astrophysicist. Um, so as somebody who loves this culture, when one wants to pursue it independently, you know, that is when one wants to appreciate the culture in a very non-biased, in a very unbiased manner. And in that pursuit, it sometimes helps to have the insights of an outsider, not just somebody from within the culture, but from an outsider. And for an outsider too, there are ways of perceiving an alien culture. There are, India has seen over so many uh, centuries where several foreigners have embraced our culture and contributed enormously to it. At the same time, there's also been critics who have been impartial, objective, and their inputs have to always been welcomed uh, to balance our own you know, analysis of what, are the, what is the worth and what are the weaknesses. Then there is the type of critics whose motives and methods needs, need to be examined critically. Not just the method, but also the motive. And in reading Pollock's work, I found both of them taking you know, equal uh, presence on the stage. In reading through his work, one of the first things that strikes is how his methods often reveal a fundamental difference in the way Oriental culture is studied from the Western perspective and in this context from the American Western uh, perspective as well as the Asian perspective. You know? And that is for the method. But when one comes to the motives, especially in the paper, The Death of Sanskrit, Pollock very clearly establishes his motives in the very first part of the essay. He's very clear in, in expressing disdain for some of the recent uh, attempts that are going on in revitalizing the language. Very clear, uh, you know, very clear disdain. He says, in post-independent India, organizations and individuals are trying to promote distorted images of India's past. Those are the words that he uses. And when one questions what are these distortions that he's talking about, it becomes things like the debates whether Sanskrit is native to India or not. What is its timeline? Is it, uh, is it really native to us? These are questions which at least to even admit that they're debatable, is set aside. And he proclaims that these are not even the issues. And these are distortions that are being 
propagated in today's age. Further, one gets the sense in reading through his uh, interpretation that somewhere he seems to be missing the key understanding of the central role Sanskrit has played in Indian ethos. It is not, it is definitely a language, but more than that, how the greatest canons of our land, you know, be it in spiritual, be it in intellectual, be it in uh, philosophical, have been expressed in this language. That central tenet, that seems to be missing when he calls any attempts, you know, of renewing it as fascistic repetition of romantic myths. That's what he calls them. I agree with him to the extent that it is very important that exaggerated claims of one's, uh, you know, national heritage should not be propagated. I agree with that. At the same time, somewhere one gets the sense that this process of rediscovery that post-independent India is facing, in the sense we are no longer willing to, at least a section of us, are no longer willing to wear the colored glasses that our oppressors have forced us to wear. We are now shedding it off and we want to look at things in our own way. That doesn't seem to be welcomed. That process of discovery, that process of regeneration is firstly not welcomed and very thoroughly attacked. By, it's very important to recognize that there is a large section you know, of all the speakers that have repeatedly highlighted it today. There's such a large section of people in India for whom Sanskrit is so central and it's very central to the very fabric of our land and to associate this debate with only certain elements and dismissing them by not making the majority of India a part of this debate. That seems to be, to me, a very, very fundamental flaw in this whole process. Pollock says that it is the state's anxiety, which is, you know, that those are the very words he uses, which is forcing uh, funds and so on into reviving the language. After having done that, he goes on to list in the paper he goes on to list all the attempts that have been um, made in recent past in reviving the language and how all of those are basically a waste of resources. His derision and disdain is very, very apparent and he leads us to the crux of his essay where he says this, government feeding tubes with oxygen tanks may try to preserve the language in a state of quasi-animation, but most observers would agree that in some sense, some crucial way, Sanskrit is dead. With this very sweeping statement, one would want to know what exactly do you mean when you say Sanskrit is dead, right? When do you declare a language to be dead? He leads up to it in a, an interesting way. He speaks about the differences between you know, written languages, spoken languages, and comes to the crux of it where he says he's calling Sanskrit to be a dead language in some sense because the death is a reference to the dearth of production of creative words in the genre of Kravya over the past one millennium. And to support this idea of him calling Sanskrit to be dead, he singles out particular instances over periods of thousand years that support this claim by invalidating a lot more other points that you know paint a contrary picture. So he singles out, that is one of the key features of his <coughs> methods. Whatever instances suit 
the particular claim he's trying to propagate. He considers phases where emphasis was laid on documentation, reinscription, restatement of problems across genres as a period of decline and decay. Now, these are issues which are very debatable. Right? Why is he even holding Kravya alone as a genre and, and coming to conclusions from that? But he does not make any reference to the, any other picture. Secondly, among his methods, he does not make any reference or actively takes away any blame from some of the main political as well as social turmoils that India as a land has faced over the past thousand years. For example, he actively, dis uh, he actively discounts any effect of the uh, Islamic invasion on the social and cultural fabric of the land. In fact, he quotes how the oppressor has often saved uh, Sanskrit. According to Pollock, it is the oppressor who in some way has always tried to revive the language, but it is the native uh, Hindu kings, the Indian uh, social and civic ethos, which has contributed to the death of the language. So it has nothing to do with any outsiders. In further explaining his idea, he considers four very discontinued moments in the past thousand years to fight for this case. So that includes uh, the state of Sanskrit and what he calls the disappearance of Sanskrit literature, the Lady Vanishes, uh, from Kashmir. Then he considers the diminished power it held in 16th century Vijayanagar Empire. Then he considers Sanskrit during the modern age of Mughal Road. And finally, in Bengal on the eve of colonial uh, epoch. So these are the four cases, very distinct, and sometimes artificially trying to force uh, you know, interpretations to emerge. And by considering the decline of Sanskrit in these four disconnected periods, he wants to show how the language has died. So if we consider the first case, the lady vanishes. In this, Pollock begins uh, by considering the state of affairs in Kashmir in 1140. Uh, he begins by describing a gathering that uh, Alankara has held to honor his brother Mankha and how the assembly is filled with some of the most august uh, you know, people of the age. There is uh, Ruyukya, there is Railokya, Hindukya, Kanthana, all of them are there. And every major branch of the language is represented in this august gathering. And this is in 1140. And Pollock mentions how from this zenith, in a matter of 50 years, Sanskrit has vanished from the valley. The intellectual zenith that was achieved, and then 50 years later, it has come down to the very decline. Then he tries to understand why this has happened. And in doing so, he holds the character, the way the Hindu kings behaved, in, during the particular period as responsible for creating a scenario in which Sanskrit apparently disappeared. After that very brief analysis, he moves over to 15th century again during uh, the time of uh, uh, Sultan Zain ul who he holds as having tried to save Sanskrit. So what happens is, he's singling out particular instances without considering 
the turmoil the valley went through in that particular period. There is absolutely no mention of the impact of the Turkish invasion on Kashmir, right? Because we have read accounts, if, if one relies only on Pollock, then this is the picture that emerges. But if we go ahead, if we study what really happened in the valley during that period, and one realizes how the Turkish invasion, especially during periods by Shamir, Sikandar Shamir, who went on a rampage, destroying the temples, destroying the idols. These are attacks that permanently altered the nature of society in Kashmir. And, and not considering these as a part of the analysis and seeing why is it that a language declined. That seems to be, you know, this, this way of intentionally leaving it out. He touches very briefly on the Monroe invasion of 1320, but he again makes no you know, a mention of the uh, Tibetan ruler, Rinchana, who attacked Kashmir. None of these attacks, which completely changed the way society worked, are considered as having any impact on this. Instead, it is held that the Hindu uh, kings and their uh, excesses and their uh, demerits were responsible for the decline of Sanskrit. The, one of the methods, the way Paul writes his paper is said, he briefly admits that the possibility exists that this picture of literary collapse needs further analysis. For example, whether words were truly destroyed in, you know, because Srinagar faced a lot of fires during those times, the capital city, whether words could have been lost over there. There is no mention of these. Instead, it is the Hindu kings who destroyed it, and it is the oppressor who tried to save it, but, you know, we couldn't uh, do it. I would actually, uh, there are particular statements that Pollock makes that are actually quite debatable. He says, for example, none of the possibilities seem very likely of anything being attributed to the Turkish invasions. Everything, it is a direct consequence of the debauchery of the Hindu kings, one has to assume, that for poets, political power had now become irrelevant to their lives and in fact an impediment. So he makes these very... Uh, hidden statements. But at the same time, there is a very uh, powerful reference to Sultan uh, Abidin's uh, uh, action where he goes and destroys the idol of uh, Goddess uh, Saraswati in a temple. This is condoned. You know, this is said as the Goddess made him do it. But when it comes to the Hindu kings, it is their debauchery which destroyed uh, the language. So one sees a sort of arbitrary application of standards missing of very clean socio-political factors that altered the ethos of the land. That seems to be for the first case. Yeah, these are the primary factors. Another thing is, uh, when he says the lady vanishes, when Sanskrit has disappeared from the valley altogether, there is no mention of how even in the late 19th century, because uh, I remember reading this in Bharti Vidya Pavan books and so on, how later on during the reign of Ranveer Singh, Sanskrit was actually very much revived. Many uh, Shaivism texts, many of them were actually very revived. Pandit, uh, Shahibram, Vishveshwara, all of them actually generated keenness for the language once again. And this is even as late as the 19th century. But these are Set aside, there is absolutely no mention of this to highlight that Sanskrit is dead. You know, Kavya was no longer made in the 12th century, 13th century, so Sanskrit has disappeared from Kashmir. Mm -hmm. 
His next case is Sanskrit in the Vijayanagar Empire, the city of victory and knowledge. Here, one of the greatest Hindu empires ever uh, to have uh, formed in India. It is not the Hindu kings that he calls responsible, but one of his second uh, pet dichotomy methods, which is the clash between the vernaculars as well as the Sanskrit. One notices somehow in Pollock's work that it is not acceptable for him to have a picture where there is exchange of ideas, there is exchange of energies between Sanskrit as well as the vernaculars in an equal manner. Of course, the vernaculars are, you know, derived, they have their mother tongue, but he seeks to somewhere play out a sort of a rivalry between the two instead of the dynamic, lively exchange that actually existed. You know, he says it is the complicated politics of literary language and competition among the literary cultures. And in the case of Vijayanagar, that is between Sanskrit, Kannada, and Telugu. He brings a kind of a dubious, critical eye of seeing this whole multilingual scene in India, which, uh, as an insider, one would find very questionable. It is, it is not that way. There is, we know how there is a dynamic exchange, both the ways, not just one competing against the other. He makes rather startling statements about uh, some of the finest scholars that were there uh, in the crowd, such as Vidyalaya, for example, or uh, Sayana when he calls them as scholars capable of only reproductive and not original thinking. These kind of very debatable statements, and especially to be made of such scholars, points to the motive rather than the merit of the argument. That seems to be the primary threat. In further analysis of this particular uh, section, he studies the work of uh, Krishnadevaraya, which is Jambavati Parinaya, this work, instead of studying it for its literary merit, for what it represents, he says it is an instrument of the king's power, one of his other pet, uh, methods. He says this, document, this work was more of a tool to propagate the king's power over his victory over the Orissa uh, king Rajapati, instead of seeing it as something where Sanskrit, Sanskrit's literary uh, merit of that age you know, so on one hand, he says no new work is being created, but when you show him new work is being created, he says no, that is an instrument of power. That is not truly a literary work. He says Sanskrit's role was confined only to, yes, he, he says Sanskrit's role was confined only to that of the imperial documents. It is not a language in which living um, thought or the ethos is being expressed. He says that is the role that was played by, by vernaculars like Canada, for example. We have the entire Dasa, Dasa tradition. So he, he tries to build a sort of an artificial divide that Sanskrit was competing against the vernaculars for expression needs. Whereas we know it has always been a very simultaneous, very dynamic existence. It has never been a sort of a competition. Among uh, his further analysis, he notes that anything that has been written in genres of Shastras, for example, or anything apart from Kravya, where one has tried to reshape, reinterpret older problems and formulate newer solutions, these are seen as restatement and reinscription, and not the ability of the language to produce new material. So this is held as one of the reasons why he sees Sanskrit to be dead. 
he does not consider how the language has been so robust that it is constantly questioning and trying to interpret the matter or the age. Instead, it is seen as genres that are not truly indicative of the dynamism of a language. So from Kashmir, then he moves over to Vijayanagar. In between all this, he strips a lot of very important um, uh, you know, political turmoils that have shaken the very fabric of the land. All of these are not given the due credit they deserve. And he comes over to the Mudhal era, where he considers three remarkable poets, Jagannatha Pandikaraja, Siddhi Chandra, and Kravindra Charya. These these belong to the Mughal era, and he considers their work and how they led to the Dabya uh, movement as being examples of how the Mughal emperors actually encouraged um, Sanskrit, and uh, they tried to uh, provide the stimulus to it. He first begins with uh, Jagannatha, who calls him the last poet to have attained uh, impact that was uh, not regional, it was far widespread. And he goes on to make references of how the quality of the Kravya that they produced was very low and hence it did not make itself, it did not find its way to go further down and spread throughout the uh, country. He admits that Jagannatha's word, Khamini Vilasa, Rasadindyadana, they all mark a departure from the practice time. And then goes on to analyze their personal lives. After Jagannatha, it is Siddhi Chandra. Siddhi Chandra was uh, at the Mughal court and Abdul Fazal, Akbar, they're all presented as men who tried to uh, provide patronage to Siddhi. And in the process, have all played very significant roles in Sanskrit. He believes that in spite of having the influence of Persian during the period, in spite of having um, you know, patronage provided to them, the fact that the scholars could not rise to the challenge of, pro of producing, uh, you know, very innovative material is already an indicator of the complete decline of the language. After uh, Siddhi Chandra, he also considers Kavindra, Kavindra Saraswati, whose work he describes as being very conventional and lacking, of, lacking in innovation. To summarize this particular era, he says, what Sanskrit learning in the 17th century prepared one to do, to infer the words from to infer from the words of these poets, was to resist all learning. So there is absolutely no mention of all the other genres of all the other work that has been done, and he reduces this whole era to that. So Sanskrit learning closes you off to the impact and influence of any other language. His fourth. His fourth example, I mean his fourth uh, case, is the colonial period, where he begins by recounting some of the surveys that were done by uh, William Adam in the, 18th, in the 1830s. So even as late in this, you have pockets throughout the country where Sanskrit is surviving. I mean, when I read about these things, I feel it is the robustness of the language that has in fact even survived it all. Because later on he makes comparisons with Latin and Greek and so on. But discounting that, he comes to the 19th century where when he study, when he takes a look at the data in the surveys, Sanskrit is in fact very much alive. He considers data from the Bengal as well as the Madras residences 
uh, and when they consider the number of schools that are there, the number of students in there who are learning sensor, it is still very high. But here, because his older arguments don't hold, he feels that the vast majority of the Sanskrit students were engaged in the study of grammar, logic, and law. And because those involved with Kavya alone was a very small number, that he sees as an indicator that the language is declining. So he's not even willing to admit that the kind of scholarship that is going on, even in spite of all that onslaught, in, those, uh, in the other journals is not seen as uh, something positive. He does admit at a few places that the absence of creation of new literature is not something that the data indicates. Uh, in fact, Asi Majumda, so many others point out that numerous words were still being produced. In spite of all this, were still being produced throughout the country. And in fact, one still needs to go back and unearth some of them and study them from today's age. That, in fact, has not been done. Because under the British uh, Macaulay's Act uh, on Education, one systematically dismantled the structures which enabled Sanskrit learning to take place. Right? The very tradition in which Sanskrit was taught, the oral nature of communication, was taken, was given a complete blow. And instead, one had to learn in the templates that uh, the British thought fit to reduce us. But that is not given any credit as one of the reasons for the failure. Socio-political factors such as anything, whether it is the termination of the Zamindari system, the patronage to pundits that was extended was, you know, slowly taken off. None of these are held as responsible. And even during this particular time, in the in the courts of Vodeyars uh, in Mysore and, and the Rajputs in Jaipur, the Maratha court of Tanjore, Words were still being produced, but Pollock, in some sense, discounts them. I was reading uh, Majumdar's work, and he has actually given a very fine list of all these words that were being produced. I think we can take that up later. And his analysis of it, Pollock's analysis of this period, comes down to Sanskrit had chosen to make itself irrelevant to the new world in terms of both the subjects considered acceptable and the audience it was prepared to address. So some of the newer forms that Sanskrit took during the era, whether it was, you know, the writing of short stories, uh, or even styles of journals, which started uh, coming under the influence of the uh, Western impact, all of these are ignored. He then takes the example of uh, Ishwar, Ishwar Chandravidya Sagar, such a bright uh, intellectual, and calls him, Sanskrit intellectuals seemed able to respond only to a challenge made on their own terrain, which is Sanskrit. So whenever you had a call for the intellectuals to rise to the occasion, he believes that they chose the medium of the vernaculars, and hence that is an indicator to the divide that existed between these two streams. Nowhere is a mention of how Vande Mataram, or such a simple, beautiful song, could galvanize a nation. Nowhere there is any mention of how Sanskrit as a mother tongue to the uh, native languages provided a, a very solid background during the freedom movement. None of this is mentioned. All of this, after considering these cases, he comes to his conclusions, which are very, uh, which are rather startling, one would say. 
It is no straightforward manner to configure these four moments of Sanskrit literary culture into a single plausible historical narrative. Begins with this, his conclusion. The way I look at it, yes, it is not possible to put together a common thread because most of his arguments seem highly artificial, as in seem forced. The data may be there, but the interpretation seems highly forced. His methods are basically highlighting highly disconnected moments which suit the case he's trying to make while ignoring all the other data that paints through a contrary picture. Then he goes on to make a case of comparing Sanskrit with uh, the other classical languages of Europe, which is your uh, Greek and Latin. The comparison to Greek is of course a little unfair because um, the way Sanskrit has survived, the way it has adapted is far resilient compared to what was the literary activity in Greek. After Greek, he also compares it to Latin and says how both of them died a painful slow death and firstly as instruments of Kravya. That is his uh, viewpoint. He believes that like how uh, you know Europe went on from Latin, it went over to French and uh, Greek and all the further languages. Similarly, even in India, the decline in Sanskrit led over to all the vernaculars coming up, and this was because of politics of what he calls politics of translocal aspiration. And the language became very closely associated only with ritualistic practices, and that he sees as a commonality between the two languages. He also admits the differences. The nature of the very nature of vernacularization in Europe and in India have been very different. Because here those who were very good in vernaculars were also very well versed in Sanskrit. It was not a you know, fight between the two for power and so on. He does highlight that. And in boldly declaring what has been the reasons for what he sees as the death, he, he emphatically sets aside any impact by the Islamic invasion and states that the barbaric invader often sought to revive it. It was the Hindu kings who were responsible for the decline. So these are the three main causes that he goes on to exist. It's the decline of the throne, the impact of the vernaculars, and the complete breakdown of the civic ethos in the land. So, having established all of these conclusions, Pollock ends his essay with this statement. At all events, the fact remains that well before the consolidation of colonialism, even before the establishment of the Islamicate political order, the mastery of tradition had become an end in itself for Sanskrit literary culture and reproduction, and rather than the revitalization of the language. This, he says, is the primary reason that uh, Sanskrit is limiting uh, his uh, you know, conclusion. Instead of limiting his conclusions only to the genre of Kavya, it becomes these overreaching uh, uh, statements from a few narrow examples that he has uh, put together from discrete moments uh, of the paper. So this is what I felt from the paper. Thank you.